January 12, 1979, the Swiss watch industry announced the thinnest watch ever made. The Delirium was developed and produced by Abouches S.A. for Concord, Eterna, Longines, and it was the just 1.98 millimeters thick. It wasn't a big seller, but it accomplished something even more important. The Delirium showed that the Swiss were innovating just like the Japanese and would stand their ground in the quartz watch market. The novel design of the Delirium also had an important impact. It inspired the creation of the most important watch ever made, the Swatch. These are the Watch Files, where we tell the stories of events that changed the horology industry. I'm your host, Serge Maillard, publisher of Europe Star. And I'm your co-host, Stephen Foskett, publisher of Grail Watch and contributor to Watch Wiki and Europa Star. Each episode of The Watch Files focuses on a different story, helping our audience better understand the people and the companies they hear about every day. So, Stephen, last uh, episode, we talked a lot about the uh, uh, integrated bracelet with, uh, of course, uh, Gérald Jantar. And uh, this uh, episode, we're going to talk a lot about the integrated uh, base plates because we're going to talk about the swatch. And we're going to focus a lot on the, how the swatch was born in this episode. And I know you really did your homework, so I'm going to leave you the, the, this, this tricky task. But first, I would like to, to share some... Uh, some things uh, I found in the Europestar archives. Uh, the very year uh, that the Swatch uh, was born, and it's a document from 1982. So the, the title we, we found is, is not very appealing. It's, it's very simple. The Swatch Watch by Ebosch Essa, Bienne, Switzerland. So with these few words in one of our uh, editions from 1982, you have what maybe uh, only a one year or two years later, people would already call a revolution because uh, in 1984, I, I already found the word revolution for the swatch. So it's like you are in the middle of a revolution and you know it's a revolution. So the ETA group, which was a, a manufacturing unit uh, belonging to Ebosch Essa, uh, just launched a new kind of watch made of synthetic material, the swatch in which a completely new concept and production technology are applied. This is a water-resistant analog quartz watch of synthetic material, which meets the high quality standards of the Swiss watch industry, but retails at prices from 40 Swiss francs. So you already have here a lot of what made the success of the, of the watch. It was affordable. Um, and then, of course, I will not read you the whole uh, communique or the whole article, but they already insist a lot on the remarkable quality price ratio, but also the totally automated uh, production of the, of the watch, which replaced uh, uh, what was until then the traditional method of producing a watch involving the assembly of components on a base plate, the main plate, uh, followed by the insertion of the movement into the watch from the back. Uh, by a new concept, um, the back made of plastic material injected with great precision serves itself as the base for the component, and that allowed to reduce drastically the number 
of components, make a watch that was much lighter, and uh, play. Uh, it gave a new avenue of, uh, of innovation, uh, basically. And of course, it was also water resistant because it had to be a fun watch that you could wear on the beach. And actually, it was considered to be the second watch. Uh, that's why uh, uh, facing the, the competition from the, from the cheap Japanese or Asian uh, watches, you had the Swiss uh, wanted to produce uh, uh, this kind of more fun watch for very, very serious uh, uh, industry. But the important uh, part is the second part also in this uh, uh, first mention of the Swatch. Uh, in which it is mentioned that the development, the whole de development of this new concept benefited to a considerable extent from the experience gained since 1978 with the Delirium watch, uh, which was the world's uh, thinnest watch. And that is really interesting. So this is what my, my friend Stephen uh, calls the thin watch war, which uh, dated, uh, well, from 1978 to 1981, and which led to the to the creation of, of the Swatch and to industrial innovation for the whole uh, watch industry, not only for the Swiss watch industry, but also for the Japanese uh, uh, watch industry. And um, just, I mentioned the, the, the year later in 1983, there was another article about these swatches that throw the watch markets into confusion and i think this it's not random maybe that is two first episodes of the watch files are about the years 1983 and 1984 last time we we spoke about uh, uh gerard Jantar being kicked out uh of the geneva show in 1984 because he was mixing uh pop art with uh noble materials and now in 1980 and 1983, sorry, we have this confusion with the swatch. So, Stephen, without further ado, of course, I give you the, the mic to, to tell us about this uh, thin watch war, which uh, seems quite uh, threatening. So that was, that was quite a war. Yeah, it is interesting, isn't it, that the, the worst years, I mean, what, what was considered at the time to be the worst years for the industry, were also some of the most important years for the industry where they developed what became the modern watch industry. And so, yeah, indeed, in 1983, uh, the Swatch was introduced, but the Swatch didn't come from nowhere. The Swatch, in fact, was not a, a product so much as it was an idea, and it was the product of the entire industry. And, and where did this come from? What I'd like to start with is America, of course, right? I'm the American here. So the American market was very different from the world market for watches. I think a lot of people don't understand quite what was going on in the American market in the 60s and the 70s. But suffice to say, there wasn't much market for high-end watches in America. Most Americans were very happy to wear a Timex from General Time, a Hamilton from, you know, the American Hamilton Company in the 50s, um, you know, Elgin. And most Americans were very, very resistant to wearing high-end expensive watches at the time. 
And um, this all changed when a uh, gentleman uh, escaped from Cuba. Uh, Jerry Grinberg came from Cuba uh, to New York, and he had been selling high-end luxury watches in Cuba uh, previously. And he uh, was the American distributor of a company that we are all familiar with, Piaget. Grinberg was probably the world's first social media influencer impresario before there was such a thing as social media. He had the bright idea that if he could get his watch on the, the wrists of all the it people in American society, then everybody would want to, who wanted to be it would be wearing that watch. Does that sound familiar? And so what he did was he organized these um, salons in New York where he would invite people like Richard Nixon or Dwight Eisenhower or John Kennedy, he wasn't very political, to come and speak about basically whatever they wanted. But the important thing was that they had to basically show off uh, either a Piaget or a Corum. He also distributed the Corum watch, uh, famously the coin-shaped watch. And, um, and it worked. Pretty soon, anyone who was anyone wanted a Piaget ultra-thin gold watch. Anybody who was anyone wanted a Corum coin watch. And this made Grinberg incredibly rich. Uh, the North American Watch Company was one of the most powerful distributors in the industry in the 70s. And basically, you know, he was able to establish this, you know, kind of influencer thing, you know, well before or any of us had Instagram. So, so what happened next? Well, courts happened next. As, as you all know, in uh, 1967, the Swiss and the Japanese uh, Seiko Corporation uh, introduced the world's first quartz wristwatches. And in 1969, Seiko was the first to put one on sale um, and get one on the wrists of, a cons of customers on Christmas Day, 1969. And um, the Swiss were right there. Uh, I think it's important to remember that the, the Swiss actually got there before Seiko. They developed the quartz crystals before Seiko. They were ahead of Seiko. But Seiko had uh, two secret weapons. Number one, they were incredibly driven to continually innovate. They didn't have any compunction about competing with themselves. In fact, Seiko set up two competing internal factories to compete with each other on the development of movements, both mechanical and quartz. And number two, Seiko had incredible vertical integration. This is a company that at the time then and even now produces every component and was able to basically push something into production without really necessarily relying on others to produce anything. And, and you contrast that with what the Swiss were doing. Uh, the Beta 21 movement, which was the world's first quartz wristwatch movement, also one of the first ones to go on sale, it was actually the product of probably a dozen different Swiss companies. And that was how the Swiss worked. That was how the, the industry worked. And even though the industry was consolidating, it wasn't yet truly vertically integrated. So we have Grinberg in America selling Piaget thin gold wristwatches for incredible amounts of money. And he suddenly saw something terrible and terrifying happen. In May 1978, Citizen Watches introduced an ultra-thin watch called the Exceed Gold. Um, this wasn't for sale in America, but it, the movement, the quartz movement in this watch was only 0.98 millimeters thick. In other words, it was less than one millimeter thick. 
The watch itself was 4.1 millimeters, which meant that it was actually thicker than some of the mechanical watches that were on the market. Jean LaSalle was a brand that made amazing thin mechanical watches. But Citizen showed what you could do with quartz. Seiko was already at that point producing ultra thin quartz movements under three millimeters. Seiko was rapidly developing. Citizen was rapidly developing. And then something worse happened for Grinberg. On July 20th, 1978, Seiko got perhaps the ultimate business scoop. They announced that they would be selling a watch that was only 2.5 millimeters thick, so th thinner than anything else that had ever existed. And they were going to sell this in the counters of Tiffany and Company. And that was probably the biggest shot across the bow that Grinberg had ever felt because Tiffany never sold, would never sell a Japanese watch. And here they were gonna be selling not only a Japanese watch, but the thinnest watch, something better than anything he had to offer. The watch was $5,000 and Seiko only promised seven of them initially to Tiffany. But can you imagine the New Yorkers who by, the, by now had been trained by Grinberg to respect thinness, to respect gold watches, to respect technology, and to respect Tiffany going in there and wanting the ultimate watch. And the ultimate watch was not a Piaget, it was a Seiko. And so that is the impetus of the thin watch war. I don't know if you have anything to add here, Serge, to this whole. I, I, I would actually advise everyone to go on, on Grail Watch on your website where you, you have this uh, article uh, featuring archives. And one of them is very intri intriguing is that a New York Times uh, article, which is about the battle to build the thinnest watch. And, and that's uh, really, you have this uh, power play between the Japanese and the Americans, and you have an American retailer uh, partnering with, uh, with the Japanese. So that, that was also a time where you had really these national blocks of, uh, of watchmakers uh, competing with each other. And, uh, and that, that's, that's really fascinating. What, what's really fascinating is that this was uh, really uh, cutting edge innovation for for very high prices. So it means that also today we we associate uh, actually the work that uh, today uh, Seiko is trying to do with Grand Seiko to put in perspective. Uh, back in the days, it was already at, at Tiffany and it was already sold along uh, expensive items. So so that doesn't come from nowhere, of course. But that's uh, always fascinating to see this. Uh, uh, loops in in history, but I, I let you I let I, I let you continue. Of course, the 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 intriguing thin watch war and how it came back to Switzerland at the end. And boy, did it come back to Switzerland! Essentially, when Grinberg saw what was going on, he took a plane uh, to Geneva and he sat down with Evosche's SA and with ETA and uh, and he said, "This will not stand. We can't." lose this war because he realized that um, that Seiko didn't need North American watch company. Seiko didn't need Longines or Omega or any of them. And Seiko was essentially delivering not just volume quartz, they were delivering luxury quartz. And they were, like I said, they bumped Piaget out of the showroom and out of the buzz of New York. And so Grinberg apparently sat down with the titans of the watch industry basically the heads of many of the big uh, Swiss watch companies and delivered an amazing blistering speech. I would love to get a copy of the speech. Apparently it was leaked. Um, Serge, I want you to 
to help me find it. Uh, apparently there was a, a transcript of that speech leaked somewhere. And um, what he did was he actually put it, uh, he, he put an offer on the table and he said, look, I will give you 2 million Swiss francs to deliver me a nine line ultra thin movement that beats Seiko. And for those of you who don't know, uh, movements are measured in an archaic French unit of measure called a line. Uh, nine line would be incredibly, incredibly uh, small. Uh, did you ha have you ever heard of that uh, that speech, Serge? Have you ever seen that transcript? I I, I haven't, and unfortunately, there was no podcast uh, back in the day, so so I I don't know. You know that uh, we can never find it. Maybe it's in a bank somewhere. So Grinberg literally, I mean, he, 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 I don't know if he literally put a suitcase of money on the table, but he metaphorically put a suitcase of money on the table and said, look, shape up, make this thing happen. And the thing is, you know, the Swiss weren't asleep at the wheel. Uh, they had already been developing at more advanced quartz movements. The problem was that the Japanese were developing much, much faster. So to give you an idea, Seiko introduced a new quartz movement about every six months in uh, between 1969 and 1979. They introduced a, a, a redesign movement that quickly. They introduced, they had two, two different factories working on it. They went from really goofy, laughable designs in 1970 to effectively what is today's modern quartz watch in 1975. And by 1978, they had basically developed what they sell today pretty much the whole thing uh, was, was built. So the Swiss were working hard. Um, they had a, 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 tremendous, a tremendous engineer who I respect a great deal, Anton Bali, or Tony, uh, as he was known to Americans. Uh, Bali uh, was working on these things. By the way, Bali also designed a movement called the ETA 2892, if you've ever heard of that movement. He designed basically the first uh, really good Swiss courts movement. And he was uh, basically on the team to help develop this, uh, this thing. So uh, technical director uh, Andre Beiner from Abouch's uh, SA assigned Bally to work on a movement. They basically pulled out all the stops. And it's really incredible how fast they were able to move. Um, so again, uh, the Seiko-Tiffany scandal happened on July 20th, 1978. Well, Guess what? On January 12th, 1979, so that's five months later, the entire industry got together at a joint press conference around the world to announce the development and, uh, of the Delirium watch. It shows that the Swiss had already been working in this direction, but that Grinberg's uh, money and his uh, challenge, the challenge of the Japanese, basically made this thing happen and made it happen really, really quick. So on January 12th, 1979, the Delirium was announced. Um, this was a product, it was completely produced by ETA. There was no other companies that were that were working on the, on the development, even though it would be marketed as a Concord brand watch in the United States, as an Eterna brand in some parts of the world, and as a Longines. So it was, uh, but it was completely built by ETA. 
all of the watches were the same for the most part with the same uh, details and designs, but branded slightly differently. And this was a, you know, a huge announcement. Yeah, that was, that was really a, a, a very quick reaction, actually, to, to, to what you just mentioned before, which was the, this blow by, by, by Seiko with Tiffany. And uh, the Swiss watch industry was surprisingly maybe quick to, to, to react, but that, that also showed all the, all, the, all the work they had already done and uh, that they were ready. Uh, and, and, and it also showed that in this era of consolidation, of uh, renewal of the uh, Swiss industry apparatus, uh, that's, that's what's really interesting is ETA was already behind all of this. And you have this some somewhat uh, co confusing uh, labels uh, on the Delirium, which is uh, sold under uh, different brands. But a, a bit like today, you would have ETA. Uh, sold uh, uh, under different brands. So that was really the conjunction of this quest for innovation with uh, this new industrial system being being uh, put in place in uh, in Switzerland with uh, with ETA and 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 again this transition era. And you also mentioned uh, Jean Lassalle, which was also a, I think we should also pay tribute to him because uh, his his mechanical watches, of course, were. Uh, were impressive, and it, it was also a quest for for thinness that was that was important at that time. So it was a, a collaborative uh, effort from the from the Swiss industry. Ultimately, uh, the quest for a mass-produced uh, thin watch. And I think that the the real lesson here has nothing to do with technology and everything to do with the industry. As we said, the you know the Swiss had all the ingredients. They had the engineering, they had the know-how, and now they had the business to make it happen. So one other person that we really need to talk about, it, who was perhaps, you know, one of the most important people in this story, was the head of, uh, of ETA, Ernst Tomke. This guy was called by uh, an engineer that worked underneath him, who we'll get to in a minute, uh, called him the Steve Jobs of the Swiss watch industry. This guy was incredibly driven. He wanted to get it done. And he basically came in to help clean up the Swiss watch industry. He ran ETA. He later ran Tissot and Omega and ran uh, SMH, which is the company that we now know as the Swatch Group. And if you think Hayek was the was was solely responsible well then i think that there's a a strong group of people in the industry that are going to to challenge that so he's the one who ultimately made the decision to move forward with the development of the delirium uh he saw the the technology that the swiss had and he put it into practice so the delirium one went on sale in uh, january 1979 uh, again it was 1.98 millimeters thick it was so thin that it needed a special battery but the swiss had that too Interestingly, that's one thing the Japanese didn't have. So one of the reasons that the, uh, the Citizen watch was so thick, 4.1 millimeters, even though the movement itself was only one millimeter, is because the battery was like three millimeters thick. Uh, the Swiss actually had Renata, the battery maker, and uh, Renata was able to put together an ultra-thin battery for the Delirium and uh, basically get us to a watch that was, you know, under, just under two millimeters. Interestingly, um, they didn't stop innovating there. Uh, they delivered a watch that was half a millimeter thinner just six months later. Uh, the Delirium II 
was announced uh, again just in June or July of that year, 1979. It was 1.43 uh, or 1.44, depending on different reports. It was basically a collector's model that would be the world's thinnest watch. It was like a super thin delirium. And then uh, in January 1980, uh, which was just a year after the first one was released, they released a ladies' model that not only was uh, 1.6 millimeters, so a little thicker than the Delirium 2, but well thinner than the Delirium 1, but smaller in every other dimension. And that was a full production watch as well. And then finally, at the end of 1980, uh, they delivered the ultimate watch, um, the ultimate thin watch, the Delirium 4. And I'm going to talk about that in a minute, but um, you know, I think it's important to, uh, to, to go back to the whole uh, marketing of these things. So these days, if you ask somebody who's heard of the delirium, um, the word that's going to come to mind is conquered. And so they're not going to say Tom Key. They're not going to say Bally. They're not going to say ETA or Bausch's. They're going to say conquered, developed the delirium. And the reason is because of Grinberg. Uh, he wanted to buy Movado. Uh, because Movado was the ultimate American brand, and they wouldn't sell it to him. And so instead, he bought the Concord brand, and he basically sold the Delirium in America as a Concord model. And the, the brand Delirium and the brand Concord became so intertwined that even today, Concord is a watch company that makes a model called the Delirium. And even though in 1979, uh, you know, Longines and, and Eterna uh, also sold Delirium watches. The brand basically ended up being associated only with Concord. And the watch ended up being associated only with Concord. I think that's also pretty interesting that for most people, most people forget that the Swiss were involved in this at all. And they think of it almost as an American product because it was, you know, so associated with this American brand and this American businessman. Yeah, it's true that the, the, the branding was definitely confusing. And when you have several brands using uh, one, the same the same name, of course, it's uh, it's confusing. But the, uh, I would say, uh, in a way, it paid tribute to to Greenberg because he was the one who who challenged the Swiss in order to to challenge. He used the, the Swiss to challenge the Japanese in some way. But uh, so it makes sense that maybe the the, the name he chose was uh, stuck in uh, history in some way. But it's not because you're the first that you're the best. And I think that also proves that. The craziest branding nonsense involving the delirium involved the ladies model. So the, the, as I mentioned, the, the ladies model was technically called the delirium three. And that's how Concord marketed it. Uh, Eterna marketed it as the Linnea 3 because they called all of their Delirium models Linnea. But Longines used the Delirium name, but Longines had never sold the Delirium 2. So how mind-bending is this? Longines sold the Delirium 3 as the Delirium 2. <laughs> and that gets very confusing when you're trying to research these things. Uh, they just use the number two instead of the Roman numerals. So anyway, that's just a, a weird aside. So, so let me tell you guys about the world's ultimate thin watch, the Delirium 4. So in December 1980, um, the Swiss watch industry introduced the Delirium 4. It was 0.98 millimeters thick, which if you'll remember, that's the same thickness as the um, amazing Citizen Exceed Gold movement, the 790, except this is the whole watch. It includes the battery, it includes the crystal, it includes the case, everything. 0.98 millimeters thick. It was too thin to wear. If you wore it, you would bend it and you would break it. And um, I've heard reports of people who held these things in their hands 
And they said that they, they have to be very careful with it because it's so thin. It was so thin that the, uh, the company that developed the crystal had to figure out a way to make an ultra thin sheet of synthetic sapphire. It was so thin that it didn't have hands. Instead of hands, it actually had two discs of sapphire. One of them was inscribed with a short black line and the other with a longer line. And those were the hands. And so the entire thing was basically a, a single, like a sandwich. And those discs rotated. And that was what appeared to be hands on the, on the dial of the watch. And so the, the, the Delirium 4 ended up essentially being the world's ultimate ultra thin watch. And, and, and it showed that the Swiss had well and truly won the thin watch war. It was sold by both Concord and Eterna. Um, not many were sold. I, I don't really have a guess because I couldn't find any numbers, but I, I imagine that it was probably about a dozen of them that were sold, if, if that many. In the truest sense, it was a concept watch, really. Um, it was displaying the strength of, uh, of an industry. Indeed. And I think that's important. Eterna sold it as the museum watch, um, which maybe brings to mind Movado. But anyway, Eternus, uh, they literally, they called it the Linnea Museum Watch because that's where it, it belongs in a museum, just like Indiana Jones said. So in between all this, all this work, um, Seiko had actually introduced some new thin watches. And I hate to say this, I'm sorry, Seiko, but nobody cared. Um, Seiko delivered a watch that was uh, one and a half millimeters thin. Um, they delivered a, a movement that was uh, 0 0.85 millimeters thin. They later de delivered one that was 0 0.8 millimeters thin. But nobody cared because the Swiss had won, the delirium had won, and the battle was over. But the battle wasn't over inside ETA and Bausch's and Aswag and all these, uh, all these Swiss industry groups, because essentially they realized that they had won the PR war, but now they needed to actually win the sales war. And in order to sell these things, well, they couldn't sell the delirium. The delirium was too thin, too impractical and too expensive. But it was super clever that they had integrated the movement directly into the case. It wasn't a separate unit. It was built directly into the case. The crystal went on last. And so in, within the industry, um, there was a decision made to try to figure out how to build a production watch that used that same concept and would be um, effectively a, a mass market watch. And they called it delirium vulgare, which sounds terrible to people who think of the word vulgar, but it actually means delirium for the masses in Latin. So they decided they wanted to create a, a, a mass market watch like the Delirium, but they couldn't do it. Uh, nobody could figure out how to make this thing in volume. Nobody could figure out how to leverage the technology that they had created in any way that would be a mass market watch. In the meantime, some of the engineers inside ETA were dabbling with some other crazy things. So one of those engineers uh, was a man named Elmar Mock. And Mach worked on various quartz movements within ETA. And one of his projects was basically insulating the electronics. And so he was working with using plastic around electronic components to keep them insulated in case, uh, you know, so they, they won't short out. And uh, he got really interested in injection molding plastic. And Mach and uh, a, a fellow engineer named Jacques Muller decided to buy a uh, half a million franc injection molding machine to play with it. And so they, apparently they bought this machine and they got it installed in an attic at ETA, even though they weren't allowed 
to be working on plastic because that was the, the different division. And eventually Tomkey got wind of this expense and called Mock into his office and said, what is this? And apparently, so, so in, in uh, 1980, um, apparently uh, he, uh, Tomkey, not known for being a patient man, uh, ranted and raved at Mock and called him immature and called him inconsiderate and spendthrift and then said basically, why did you spend a half a million francs on a machine to do nothing? What is this for? And Mock and Miller, thinking ahead of time, basically showed him a sketch. And it was a sketch of a watch that used the same idea as the delirium, where the, the components would be mounted to the back plate, the, the movement would be installed on top of that, then the dial, then the hands, the crystal, and it would all be made out of injection molded plastic. And the meeting suddenly changed. Tomkey apparently said, I've been waiting for this for over a year. Where have you been? Why, you know, where have you been my whole life? We're doing this. And so Mock literally thought he was going to be fired, but ended up inventing the swatch on the spot. And, and the swatch, interestingly, too, would be first sold in the U.S., um, that that was the first stage uh, that we mentioned. So the now, now we we close the loop because we we are uh, the next ar archive we're going to talk about is the one I mentioned at the beginning of this session with the delirium with the concept of the integrated uh, plate and of course adding the the the, the plastic and the the fact that it was a wearable watch and not a concept watch a watch for the masses. Uh, vulgari, vulgari, <laughs> in the sense that uh, that Stephen said, um, it was it it was really um, a, a show of, of strength again by ETA, and it shows also how two different uh, uh, researches that were um, used or displayed on on different instances in the same building at the end of the day uh, they joined and. Uh, you had plastic, you had the thin watch, um, and of course you had a, a ton of other developments. But essentially, uh, what really fascinates me in this story is how this quest for the thin watch, which was an expensive quest, which was uh, a, a, a high-end uh, quest, uh, something sold at Tiffany, uh, resulted in the uh, watch of the mass, in the democratization of this research uh, so that everyone could have this second watch, which would for many people be the actually the, the first watch. So it, it was first uh, launched on, in the autumn of 1982 uh, on the American market. And um, in 1983, uh, it was introduced also in uh, other markets, including uh, Switzerland. And um, what we can say is that in other archives that we found, it's that these sales exceeded uh, all the expectations. For instance, for 1983, the heads of ETA had aimed uh, a target of uh, uh, 100,000 watches for Switzerland, but end of August, uh, 220,000 swatches have already been sold. This is one instance. And another uh, interesting fact is that uh, quickly uh, other uh, brands, including department stores in Switzerland, 
try to uh, mimic the swatch or to, to do a, an, another swatch, but they didn't do it with the same concept with the, with the integrated uh, uh, plate. And um, probably if you, if you live in Switzerland, you know the Migros, which is the main department store of Switzerland. And they also launched the uh, so-called M watch, uh, which was a more traditional quartz watch, uh, but uh, an affordable one, which was also to show the impact of the swatch on the mindset because it, it uh, fostered the uh, era of uh, creativity. And then uh, the rest is history. We're gonna focus, of course, uh, we focus today on the on how this uh, thin watch wore unveiled. And what I found interesting, Stephen, is also that um, in your article, you mentioned that this was also for the Japanese an era of interesting developments. It, it's not to mean that the Japanese uh, lost uh, a war. They may, Switzerland or Japan may have lost some battles, but uh, I find it interesting that you mentioned also that for Seiko, for citizen, this was an era where uh, this innovation would actually uh, uh, meet with, with profit at the end. Indeed, the, the war was a good war because it spurred Seiko to develop ever better movements. Um, one company I didn't mention was Ricoh. So um, Citizen was actually late to the party with, with quartz watches. Instead, it was a two-horse race in Japan between Seiko and Ricoh. And uh, Rico developed some really wonderful movements and Citizen felt threatened by that. And that's why Citizen jumped in and why Citizen put so much effort and so much money into competing here. The fact that this war was going on spurred the development of Seiko, of Rico, of ETA and Swatch itself. Another thing I find interesting was that so as, as you say, Swatch was introduced in the fall of 1982 in a as a test market in the southern United States, in Dallas through Louisiana. And, and it was kind of a flop. People didn't know what to think of it. People didn't really want it. They didn't really like the product. And amusingly, they didn't sell out. Those initial Swatch models didn't really sell until Tomke put Franz Sprecher, who was a marketing consultant in charge of Swatch watches, and he came up with this whole concept of second watch, but he also came up with the idea of making them in fun colors, of collaborating with designers eventually. And the Swatch group effectively, their, their, their success wasn't about anything that we've talked about. It wasn't about the case and the integrated movement. It was about the fact that they figured out how to mass produce these things, that they integrated most of the industry into this one company, SMH, and that they realized that they needed to market these things and they needed to market them in a, in a new and novel way. And that's exactly what they did. So I would say that the success of the Swatch really is the success of what we now know of as the Swatch Group. In other words, a vertically integrated company that can produce tremendous products, tremendously high quality products and market the heck out of them. And that's really what happened. And I guess uh, as a final note, I'll say as a postscript. So I mentioned uh, Tomkey, the Steve Jobs of the watch industry, as Elmar Mock, the inventor of the Swatch, called him. Well, Tomkey was a very difficult man. And Hayek, uh, who was brought in as the consultant to integrate the Swiss watch industry, was a very difficult man. And these two difficult men did not like each other. There's some interesting stories in the archives, and there are some interesting stories in the industry of the difficulty these two men had with each other. And eventually, Tomkey uh, had enough. 
And he went back to his training as a, uh, in, in the medical fields, and he became Switzerland's leading business turnaround expert. And he um, was uninvolved in the watch industry for the next 20 years. In the meantime, of course, Nicholas Hayek basically built the industry back up in the next 20 years. And so all of this came together and then came apart as a result of the delirium and the swatch. Thank you so much, Stephen, for, for all this uh, fascinating story, really, because uh, we see that out of the archives, we can find a lot of, uh, a lot of goals. And uh, I remember in the archives, there is also the, uh, the Swatch won actually many awards. One of them was in Frankfurt in 1985, and, and they displayed uh, the, the giant, uh, giant Swatch. On a, on a skyscraper in, in Frankfurt. And you, you also this, you, you had this kind of mass marketing, guerrilla marketing and disruptive marketing, which was uh, unrivaled uh, uh, at that time. And that matched also the, the, the innovation that, that, that uh, uh, as, as you mentioned, was, was put in this, in this project. I am Serge Maillard, you can find my my writing in uh, Europostar at europostar.com. And uh, Stephen, thank you so much. Well, thank you, Serge. It's always great to be able to speak with you about uh, the history of the industry and the, the results and, and to really take a critical look at it. Um, you can find my writing at grailwatch.com or the pages of Europastar. You can also find me on Twitter at grailwatch. And um, I look forward to the next episode of The Watch Files. <laughs> <laughs>